Good morning. Genesis chapter 16. As we continue our odyssey through the first book of the Bible, and it is crazy time this morning. Genesis 16 is crazy stuff, and you'll find out why here in just a moment. We'll read all 16 verses of Genesis chapter 16. Read along as I read out loud. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, You are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Berleheroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Thus far, God's word. Some years ago, I had a couple of defining conversations. The first one was with a psychologist uh, behind whom I sat at a university commencement and we just began talking before the ceremony on that day. During the course of the conversation, he told me that it only took seeing his first 100 clients to realize that most problems can be reduced to a handful of basic 
issues. In other words, it hadn't taken him all that long to have heard it all. The second conversation was with a psychiatrist who told me that the problems facing most of his clients could be addressed by uh, just one of about six working paradigms from which he regularly drew. In other words, the solution to most problems is fairly simple. Uh, Not simplistic, but simple. The points here are these. While you may think that you're the only one with your problem, you're not. And further, while you may think that there's no way out of your problem, there is. Genesis 16 reveals that everybody's got problems. Abram and Sarai had problems, and we'll explore the anatomy of that problem in the first six verses of this chapter. Now, their problems may not look exactly like yours, but they probably contain one or more of the basic toxic elements that uh, comprise your problem this morning. Genesis 16 also reveals that every problem has a way out. No matter how way out your problem is. And we'll see that in verses 7 through 16. Now, Abram and Sarai's problem, it sounds pretty crazy. In fact, it's, it's the seed of doubt about which uh, Eric Tanis preached a couple of weeks ago, now come to full flower. So how wonderful to know that no problem is ever so far gone that God isn't going to see it and address it, which is in part what Kenny was preaching on last week. And it really takes us right to the heart of Genesis 16 this morning, the two main points that we'll see. First of all, we'll see that God is a seeing God. He sees you. He sees you where you are. He sees you as you are. Now, your life may look one way on the outside of your house, outside of your apartment, outside of your residence hall, and an entirely different way inside. A way that is hurtful, painful, destructive, disgusting, even embarrassing. But take heart, because God sees you. You may not want him to see you, but he does, and he can handle your stuff, and help is available. Not only is help available, but for the compromised, help is on the way, because the seeing God of Genesis chapter 16 is also a pursuing God. In fact, Genesis 16, to me, is like an amber alert. You all know what an Amber Alert is. It's a message informing people that a child has been abducted. And it's broadcast over a breadth of media within hundreds of miles of where that abduction has taken place. So it comes over the digital signs that we see on the highway. It comes over the internet. It comes over radio and television. It comes uh, over text messages and emails. And an Amber Alert is broadcast in all those ways 
so that everybody knows what's happening. Maybe you've been someplace when an Amber Alert has gone off at the market, uh, maybe in the library, or a concert like last year's Christmas concert right here in this room when an Amber Alert took place. And so you know that it can interrupt even a do not disturb setting on your phone. It makes things shake, it emits this annoying noise. Some people find the obtrusiveness of the Amber Alert rather intrusive and troublesome. But you know what? To the child, to the child, it says this, we know you're there. Help is available. In fact, help is on the way. So as we open up Genesis 16, God is saying everybody's got problems, but there's not a problem that escapes his sight because he's a seeing God and he's also a pursuing God. Now, before we uh, dive full-blown into this text, I want us to notice again that not only do Abram and Sarah have problems, but they have a vacillating faith that is the source of their problems. In other words, they have a faith that swings back and forth. We saw at the beginning of Genesis 12, Abram's faith was at full throttle. And then at the end of chapter 12, he was faithless. Then we get into 13 and 14, and his faith is on the rise again. It's monumentally faithful in 15, but that's what makes that fall back to faithlessness here in chapter 16 so frightful. In fact, if Abram was guilty of throwing Sarai under the bus to save his hide in Egypt back in chapter 12, then Sarai is guilty of throwing Abram under the bus to save her pride here in chapter 16. The difference is at least Sarai maintained her honor back in Egypt, but here both Abram and Sarai go down in flames. So let's see how this fiery fall begins in verse number one. The opening words of chapter 16 express the angst out of which this episode is born. Take a look at those with me. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Now in the ancient world, husbands worked outside the home and the wives worked inside the home. Husbands raised the crops, wives, wives raised the kids. Husbands herded cattle, wives herded kids. That's the way it was. And in the ancient world, this corresponding partnership was, was very important since the future of one's farm relied on a new generation of farmers. And, and the future of one's ranch relied on a future generation of ranchers. So if a wife couldn't bear children, it was a public embarrassment. It was also privately agonizing. And it was especially frustrating for Sarai because she wanted to have children. And not only that, God had promised her a child. And yet confirmation of that promise um, uh, had been a decade earlier, way back in chapter 15. So she was desperate. In fact, that desperation heightened her pain, and that pain fueled her impatience, and that impatience led her to 
uh, create this plan of her own uh, making to expedite God's will, which, while in keeping with convention, was entirely not in keeping with God's covenant. So we see there in verse 2, Sarah explains this plan to her husband. She says, uh, and Sarah said to Abram, so here's her rationale for the plan, behold, in other words, listen, I'm going to tell you something that's important. Uh, The Lord has prevented me from having children. So here's the plan. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of his wife, Sarah. How did she come up with that plan? And how was it that Abram went along with this? Well, she did it, Sarai did this, by looking around at the world in which they lived. Polygamy was culturally acceptable back in that day. It alleviated childlessness, and it provided a husband with an heir, uh, wives with children, and a family with workers. Not only that, polygamy was legal. It was codified in a variety of law books uh, in countries throughout the region from Babylon all the way down to Mesopotamia. So Sarai, with all this in her head, takes Sarah, uh, or Sarai rather, takes her servant Hagar, who probably joined up with them down in Egypt during that faithless sojourn down in Egypt. Sarai takes Hagar, and it says there in verse 3, she gives her to Abram as a wife. Now, I want to take just a moment here, do a quick sidebar on a question that is um, not unusual for a pastor to receive, and it's basically this. Why are God's New Testament people, that's you and I, why are we committed to monogamy when God's Old Testament people seem to have practiced polygamy? That's a good question. And I will generally respond with three questions of my own, the first one being, how is it supposed to be? How is it supposed to be in the beginning? We know it was supposed to be one man and one woman. We see that in Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus confirms that in Matthew chapter 19. There are other verses, but those are the main ones. Well, then that begs the question, how, how did polygamy ever come about then among God's people? And it happened when they capitulated to culture. Right? We just saw that here in chapter 16. Interestingly, our culture does the same thing. Except we don't call it polygamy. We call it serial divorce. Our culture allows for marriage and divorce and marriage and divorce and marriage and divorce multiple times in succession to satiate any one of a number of appetites and urges. And that leads to a third question. How did those polygamous relationships work out? Well, let's take a look. Lamech was the first polygamist, and he was best known for his violence. Jacob's polygamy led to family heartbreak and envy and finally attempted murder. Gideon's polygamy led to civil war and wholesale slaughter throughout Israel. David's polygamy led to murder 
and an incestuous, rebellious family. Solomon's polygamy led to the accumulation of 700 wives, another 300 concubines, and finally the breakup of the kingdom of Israel. So what do you think? (laughs) How did it work out? Well, how did Sarai's polygamous plan work out? A plan that was devised, again, entirely by a social and cultural convention, but not in keeping with God's covenant. Well, Sarai's plan turned out to be an ugly plan. Back in chapter 3, where we find the first marriage in the Bible, we find that the bride, Eve, is given away by her father, right? Who happens to be God. But here in chapter 16, Hagar is given away by Sarai. What a twisted picture. It's not only an ugly plan, but Sarah's plan turned out to be an abusive plan. Hagar, who belonged to Sarah, should have been protected by Sarai. But instead, her, her mistress uses her, not to realize God's will, but her own. Take a look at verse 2. That I shall obtain children. Further, Hagar had no say in this. She, she's a victim. And sadly, she is now a victim of the hashtag Me Too community. Sarai's plan also turns out to be a backward plan. A backward plan, that is to say it follows that failed blueprint uh, created by Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 3. Following Eve's example, Sarai tells Abram the manner in which God's word would be fulfilled. And just like Adam, the one to whom God's word had originally come, in this case God's word had originally come to Abram. The only reason Sarai knew anything about God's word was through Abram. In other words, he knew better. And just like Adam, Abram fails to lovingly correct his wife and instead unquestioningly obeys her. This Abram is the same one who pursued bloodthirsty kings to their death two chapters ago is now capitulating to the words of his wife. Oh, well. Happy wife, happy life, you know, the things we got to do for love. And Sarah's plan also turns out to be a failed plan. Failed miserably. The the protracted difficulty of infertility in verses 1 through 3, the unrelenting pain, the unrequited hope, the unremitting desperation makes the brevity and the ease of what you read there at the front end of verse 4 And he went into Hagar, and she conceived all the more painful and the failure of her plan all the more certain. So by the end of that verse, everything is unraveling. Everything is unraveling, you see. And when Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And why not? For all the indignity that Hagar had endured. At least she had now achieved what Sarah could not and regularly reminded her of it. 
So that's how Sarai's planned, plan turned out. How about Sarai? How'd she do with all this? Well, she became bitter. Last Sunday morning in the biblical counseling class, uh, Warren Lamb uh, taught us that, that bitterness is actually anger turned outward. So Sarai, she's got a lot of anger, and she's going to spew that on others. She is bitter. She is bitter toward her fertile servant. She is bitter toward her passive husband who further abuses Hagar by refusing to acknowledge her as his wife. We see that there in verse 6. And then even returning Hagar to Sarai as a servant. Now here's what one writer says Abram should have done, and I, I concur with this. He says he should have taken Sarai aside and assured her of his love and that she was first. He should have accepted full blame and responsibility. He should have dealt kindly and firmly with Hagar. Tellingly, he, like Sarai, never refers to Hagar by name in the account, but only by label, your servant. It's so much easier when you depersonalize those you abuse. And all of that abuse led Sarai to further abuse Hagar. The term there in verse number six, dealt harshly, is the same one that would be used to describe the abuse endured by Israel throughout all of those miserable years in Egypt. And the description of Hagar running away from Sarai there at the end of verse 6 is like those elsewhere in Scripture describing those who are escaping murderous attempts on their lives. So how did the plan as well as the persons turn out in all of this? Well, the well-ordered plan is now a thoroughgoing mess, and the persons have stripped themselves of any honor. Abram, deplorable. The two women, compassionless. Hagar, a victim. And just like Abram's faithless sojourn in Egypt back in chapter 12, there's only one person who can save the day at this point because it's so goofed up. And that's the Lord himself. But before we see how the Lord comes in and, and saves the day, as it were, I want to mention just a couple of things, a couple of things that this story makes me think of. The first thing is my early years as a pastor, over three decades ago now, right here in La Mirada, in fact, when I learned, sometimes in graphic detail, that the power of sin pervades every family. Every family. Every church family. Even our church family. One of Job's friends, I think it was Eliphaz, unequivocally declares, as sparks fly upward, so a man was meant for trouble. Women are in that boat too. The Apostle Paul confessed to the church at Rome, you know, the very thing that I don't want to do, that's the thing I end up doing. 
The songwriter Robert Robinson composed over 200 years ago words with which we still resonate today. In fact, we sang them uh, just before I came up on the platform. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So again, if you think you're the only one with troubling tendencies or embarrassing sins, you're not. Because this morning, you find yourself in the company of a sea of sinners, most of whom have been saved by grace. Second thing I'd like to uh, say before we move on is simply this. Human sex is fundamentally relational and not biological. Human sex is fundamentally relational and not biological. A sexual relationship developed outside the parameters of Scripture, even if it's culturally acceptable, even if it's legally acceptable, is doomed to fail in every way for all time. And the devastating results of that are clearly seen right here in chapter 16. In fact, the painful faithlessness of Sarai and Abram makes the great hope of this passage stand out in stark relief. And that great hope is found in the faithfulness of God. So notice how God's faithfulness is realized by the ravaged Hagar. Take a look at verse 8. In verse number 8, Hagar admits that she is fleeing, but by verse 13, she declares that the Lord is a God of seeing. So Hagar was on her way home. The, the geographical markers there in verse number 7 make it pretty clear since they're all on the route back to Egypt. But in the midst of her fleeing, with miles behind her, miles to go, trekking through the wilderness, God sees Hagar. And that turned out to be good news for her. This morning, you may be marching through a wilderness of your own, trying to escape who knows what, feeling anonymous, feeling alone, but know that just like Hagar, God sees you. But it didn't end there. Because God is not only a God of seeing, he is a God of pursuing. And that's where this whole amber alert thing kicks in. Notice in verse 7, it says that the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water. The Lord doesn't track us like a sheriff's helicopter tracks a vehicle. I was studying the other day and thought I'd take a break and I popped onto Facebook and uh, there's somebody broadcasting on their Facebook page a, a, a police pursuit from a helicopter. And in fact, I was sitting next to someone and I said, hey, this is happening right, right here in La Mirada. I turned the computer and I said, they're going to go right by grace. So I emailed Jim Clark and said, there's an armed carjacker who's going to drive right in front of your office in a moment. So, uh, but you know, just following along, turned here, turned there. That's not the way God pursues us. Always hovering, never descending. No, the Lord is seeing, He's pursuing, but He's also engaging. He comes down. And when He engages, it's important to notice how He engages. So if you're a mentor, if you're a 
grace group shepherd, if you're a parent, if you are in some kind of uh, discipleship relationship where you're helping someone along, uh, take note of these four means of engagement, the way that God engages Hagar. First, God engages Hagar by questioning her. He doesn't harshly lean in on her, but he gently draws her out by way of a question. Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? That question does so many things. First, it personalizes the encounter, doesn't it? As God uh, identifies Hagar by way of her name and her role. And then it softens the encounter as the Lord asks Hagar to explain her location in terms of where she was from and where she was headed. It's not the first time that the Lord has done that. He did it back in chapter 3, where instead of slamming Adam and Eve for their uncalcitrant behavior, the Lord draws them out. Remember that? Chapter 3, verse 9. Where are you? And then he does it again in chapter 4 where instead of slamming Cain for his murderous behavior, the Lord draws him out by simply asking, where is Abel? But God's measured approach here is not a fluffy approach. It's not an empty approach. There's actually some backbone to it because after questioning Hagar, we see that he rebukes her. Verse number nine, the angel of the Lord said to Hagar, Return to your mistress. In other words, repent. (laughs) Stop heading to where you once belonged. Turn around and start heading to where you now belong. In fact, the one with whom you belong. And so God has engaged Hagar by questioning her, rebuking her, and now he engages Hagar by correcting her. So you see that the Lord not only sends Hagar back to Sarai, but he tells her, you will submit to your mistress. Now that really does beg the question, isn't God sending Hagar back into harm's way? Is is this really the best thing to do? Well, to be sure, the situation out of which Hagar came was not one supported by God's word. So to send her back into that situation would have been sending her into harm's way. But the situation to which Hagar is being returned will be supported by God's word, which makes all the difference in the world. Finally, God engages Hagar by blessing her. He blesses her descendants there in verse number 10. And then in verse 11, he blesses with a word about her soon incoming baby. Uh, What to call him there in verse 11? You shall call his name Ishmael. And then informing her of his character in verse number 12. Ishmael's going to be opposed to everybody, even his family. They'll all be in opposition to him. And, um, you know, I was looking at that recently, and I thought to myself, if I was just looking at Ishmael through 21st century eyes, I would probably say he had an oppositional defiant disorder, ODD. Uh, You know, he's going to be explosive and argumentative and annoying and irritable and resentful and vindictive. And you may ask, 
How is that in any way a blessing? To which I reply, I have absolutely no idea. But I do know this. Um, By looking at Hagar's response, it was in no way about Ishmael. Her response is all about the Lord. Consider her three responses here, very quickly. The first one's located at the outset of the section where Hagar confesses outright to the Lord what she's doing. Adam equivocated in chapter 3. Cain equivocates in chapter 4. Hagar unequivocally confesses, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. (laughs) She is honest. But then, after, after dealing with the Lord, she turns around and she blesses him there in verse number 13. And she does this by calling on his name and acknowledging his character. You are a God of seeing, she says in verse 13. You've seen me and I have seen you. And then she blesses him by naming the well at which the Lord found her, Bir Leheroi, that is, the God who sees. In fact, Hagar is the only person in the Bible who actually attributes a name to God. All of God's names in Scripture are self-given. Here, Hagar attributes a name to the Lord. So she's confessed to the Lord, she's blessed the Lord, and finally she obeyed the Lord. And explicitly we know this from verses 14 and 15 because Hagar has been reunited with Abram. But implicitly we know this because in those same verses it's clear that Hagar has faithfully relayed the words that she received from the Lord to Abram. And Abram hears from Hagar here in chapter 16 echoes of those words that he received from the Lord back in chapter 15. So he names Ishmael according to God's word. And he is identified as as Ishmael's father three times over, while Hagar is identified as his mother also three times over. So this convoluted attempt to fulfill God's word doesn't prevent the Lord from keeping his promise of blessing on the offspring of Abram. So, as for Sarai, this story that began uh, all about her ends being all about Hagar. Sarai is nowhere in sight. In fact, I love what Alan Ross has to say about Hagar at this point because it gives those who are in the teeth of desperation some hope if they're willing to walk by the guidance of God's word. Listen to Alan Ross. He says, Hagar benefited from God's provision instead of Sarai so that she came to know more of God's presence in distress than did Sarai. The Lord sent her back to the tent situation from which she fled, but he sent her with a message and with hope. So the God who sees and pursues ends up being the God who rescues and redeems. Now, it's not to say that everything went perfectly well with those ladies from here on out, or even that whole family, because they continue to fight 
In fact, when Isaac is born, things escalate to the point where Hagar and Ishmael have to be sent away someplace else to live. But God protected them. And here's something interesting. I'd never noticed this before. 75 years later, when Abram finally dies, it's Ishmael and Isaac who come together to bury their father at the cave at Machpelah. So where does this leave us? Well, consider these couple of things in closing. First of all, remember that your faith is never too great to fail. Your faith is never too great to fail. Abram and Sarai are paragons of faith. First service, I said, they may be the only couple in the hall of faith there in Hebrews chapter 11. And then I said, fact check me on that. Let me know so I don't mislead second and third service. I had two fellas come up to me and say, well, Hebrews 11 does say that uh, Moses' parents were both faithful. Okay, so Amram and Jochebed, Abram and Sarai, faithful. They're in Hebrews 11. But you know what? They're also paragons of faithlessness. They were miserable failures. And you may feel spiritually invincible this morning. And if you are, uh, long may it last, and I rejoice with you. But never let that be an excuse for believing that you have arrived. And heed the words of Paul to the church at Corinth. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Second, don't ever let failure keep you from further growth. Failure does not prohibit further growth. We, we already see that here in chapter 16. Abram has learned his lesson and now he's pressing on in faith according to God's word. We're going to see that later in Genesis with Sarai. And you may have committed or you may have yet to commit a sin with enduring human consequences. But hear me. You will never commit a sin that puts you beyond the scope of God's seeing, his pursuing, and his engaging care as long as you receive it on his terms and not those of cultural and legal conventions. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray. Lord, each one of us here at some level is swirling in a scenario maybe of our own making or maybe of someone else's, but we're dizzy and lost and uncertain and we want to be free. Maybe we don't. Maybe the 
difficulty, at least, is reality, something we can hold on to, something that grounds us. But Lord, we do pray that you would help us to recognize that you see us and, and, and you pursue us and you will even engage with us. And by your word, we can be liberated and be put on a track that affords us the, the joy and the peace and the fulfillment and, and the strength and the hope and the future for which we've always longed. Lord, hear our prayer. May we reach out to you and find you as you are near us, even at this moment, we pray in Jesus.